Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good morning. Welcome to SOGCAST number 36. This production of SOGCAST is brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willing Productions and his technical staff in conjunction with SOG Chronicles. My name is John Stryker-Meyer. I'll be your host today. And I'm joined today by Chad, our technician. Welcome, Chad. And um, so we want to talk today about Operation Tailwind, which was one of the, during the eight-year secret war, was one of the most successful, if not most successful, um, hatchet force operations, which would be a company-sized operation outside of the area of operations during the eight-year secret war. This occurred between September 11th and the 14th, 1970, and we'll get into more detail on that. And today we have a unique perspective from the aviator who participated in that in that whole four-day operation. And um, on day one, when they had an insertion, several of the helicopters that were inserting the troops were shot up. And uh, we had... Not we. During the operation, they used CH-53 Delta models, Marine Corps couriers that took the troops, which would be 116 indigenous personnel from FOB2 at CCC Central, MACVSOG headquarters out of Contum. They had 16 Green Berets that were on the ground with the team with different air assets. And because the target was so far west, the Marine Corps brought in the CH-53 Deltas, and during the insertion, gunships supported them with gun runs. And one of the gunships that was in uh, the Marine Corps MLH-367, the call sign was Scarface. And Scarface participated quietly in the secret war, unknown to most Americans, for almost the entire secret war providing air cover, and this was one of the more historic missions. And reading her, uh, we're reading from a book called Operation Tailwind, penned by Barry Pensick, and he wrote, My bird took five hits, and this is during their first insertion. Now, normally, with a recon team, if a team going in took gunfire, the mission was compromised. But for this mission, they had to get the troops on the ground and the mission was to distract from a CIA operation as well as to look for any intel while they're on the ground. So they're inserting at least three indigenous troops or wounded during the insertion and combining that with the tactical air and our Marine Corps gunships, here Scarface, Barry wrote, My bird took five hits. Joe, as Joe Driscoll, another Scarface fellow pilot, took ten. One round went right through the tail rotor shaft, and another went through the rear instrument panel, lodged in the back of my seat. We lost all radios and electrical gear and started losing power with nothing but bad guys all around. 
it was kind of a tense. It was kind of tense for a while. The only thing I didn't like about the mission is that the worst is yet to come. So today I welcome Barry Pensick, author of this book, Operation Tailwind. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much, Tilt. <laughs> Wonderful to be here. Indeed. And that <clears throat> insertion, I mean, everything about that mission was so unique that um, it just is mind-boggling. Even when I read your book, when I go back through the numbers, it's, it's well-written, well-documented. You spent a lot of time. How many years did you spend putting all this together? It took me five years to do it. Is that right? Yeah. I thought I could do it in two, but not to be. <laughs> it took five. <laughs> So always the best plans of, of men and me. Exactly. Mises, right? yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so um, for this operation, that was for you, I mean, taking those kind of rounds, five hits, and then losing the electrical power. So you had no radios. But still, as I recall, you still made runs, gun runs. And then uh, was it you or Joe who ran out of ammo but still made one more run because when the nva would hear the helicopters coming they would all disengage yeah that, that, that was joe that they, was joe well they they took a, a round in the uh, what's <laughs> called the inner velometer on the back of a rocket pod and yeah shot all 19 rockets at once <laughs> and joe joe's flying with uh, sid baker and sid says did you do that and he says no i didn't do it i thought you did it and he said no i didn't do it and, and then their radios get shot out too and <laughs> <laughs> so, Oh man! So, um, so from here, um, I think <clears throat> on that first day, like you said, you knew the worst was going to, was to come, and and so that was based on your experience. And again, Scarface had been participating in the Secret War for eight years. Up to that point, this was the first six years of the Secret War. Scarface was there for most of it, and by now, in '68 when I arrived, we had. The old UE, in your case, would be the UH-1Es mm -hmm. that would be underpowered. They would have weapons and bullets that they could barely get off the ground. Now you guys are flying the Cobras. And that was a unique experience because you had a more of a helicopter design just to be a, a flying weapon platform. Yeah, it, it was designed strictly as a gunship. Uh, the best part, it was air-conditioned. Course, too. Of course, with the Hueys, you'd, you'd let the windows roll down the windows, but you couldn't do that in a Cobra. Keep the doors open. It had a canopy, uh, you know, like a, like a fighter, so uh, had air conditioning. But the first Cobras were kind of underpowered also. You know, we'd, we, oh, couldn't, right? we couldn't take a full bag of gas. We'd take about 1,000 pounds. A full bag was uh, 1,800 pounds. And sometimes on a hot day, you'd have to bounce along the runway to get airborne, but... <laughs> But at least we had, you know, good uh, weapons uh, system. We had a turret in the front with a 40 millimeter and a minigun and a uh, sight to where uh, you could move the sight and it would shoot left, right, up, down, wherever you point it. And then in the back, you uh, had a sight for the wing stores, and, which was so much better than the old Huey. It had an iron sight. You'd literally pull down this iron thing with pieces of wire like this made across here. No. And you'd, you'd sort of aim, see where you were going, shoot, and... And hope and pray. Hope and pray. It was an area <laughs> weapon. You were hoping to hit the grid square. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so for day one, <clears throat> did you come back for a second sortie? Uh, not not on day one. Uh, uh, we we inserted them, and then we went, we went back to Contum. We got patched up, 
and uh, we went home to uh, await, uh, you know, on standby to, sure. to, to, to see what's going to happen. And because the, the mission plan here was unique in that uh, prior uh, missions where they ran a company operations <laughs> out of Contum, out of CCC, this is Mac VSOG, Command and Control Central, based in Contum, and we had air assets attached, of which you were a part of that. And for this mission, the commanding officer on the ground was Captain Gene McCarley, and he had run other missions where the team, a hatchet force, would go in and set up a block on Ho Chi Minh Trail, then they would get mm -hmm. hammered by the North Vietnamese. So his theory was, we're <clears> going to go in get on the ground and move day and night as opposed to having a static position that the NBA could focus, bringing their mortars, artillery, and things like that. Right, exactly. Uh, you, you know you were you were a, a, a recon team, 1-1, one, one, and you would go in and your job was not to be seen or heard but to observe. Indeed. Uh, where with the hatchet force, they were usually platoon-sized operations, and they were in there – uh, reconnaissance in force and they were meant to be seen and heard and they would usually just build a defensive position overlooking the Ho Chi Minh Trail and hammer them but this this was a company size operation that Captain McCarley was running and in support of a larger CIA op and they were supposed to keep reinforcements from coming down this highway towards the uh, CIA operation and be a diversionary force. So they yeah, and again, just for a quick little <clears throat> thumbnail sketch, which you which you outlined actually by chapter by chapter in your book, what happened in March of 1970 that led to all this Operation Tailwind? Um, just a quick thumbnail on that, then get around to the operation. Well, the the genesis of it, uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which people are familiar with, brought all the men and equip, uh, all of the personnel from North Vietnam, but only about 30% of the equipment. 70% of the equipment actually went by sea, and it came around to Cambodia, to Sihanoukville. Uh, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, Prince Sihanouk was the communist leader of Cambodia, and from there they built the Sihanouk Trail, which brought all this equipment north and to, to distribute in uh, 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 South Vietnam. So in March of 70, Prince Sihanouk was overthrown by one of his generals, uh, and all of a sudden the Sihanouk Trail was shut down. So the communists needed a route to bring their equipment, so they thought if they could get control of the Sekong River Valley, the Sekong River flowed into the Mekong, and the Mekong flowed into South Vietnam, they could have that as a river, riverway to ship equipment. So the CIA had a lot of positions on the Bolivans Plateau overlooking the Sekong Valley, and the uh, NVA uh, attacked and captured these positions, uh, which got the attention of people in the White House. And Henry Kissinger had this Washington Special Action Group that consisted of him and CIA, uh, State Department, DOD, and others. And they came up with this, the CIA came up with the plan to uh, called Operation Gauntlet, and was to recaption the CIA position uh, on this uh, Bolands Plateau and thereby control the Sekong River Valley. So the U.S. military got tasked. Operation Tailwind was as a diversion to this greater CIA operation, which had 5,700 mercenaries involved. That meant... <clears throat> yeah, it was huge. And they were uh, heavily engaged 
and they needed the distraction of Operation Tailwind to pull away some of the NVA resources right. to give them a break in their combat. Yeah. The the trail was was broken down into uh, 27 bin trams, they were called. Each was responsible for a section of the trail, and each bin tram had like two infantry companies, uh, a, a AAA uh, battalion, and uh, other assets, you know, pipe laying, uh, pipeline laying uh, units and truck repair and everything else. Yeah, because you had those good details in your book. <clears throat> like in the end, they had, as you noted in your book, they had 27 bin trams from the top of the Ho Chi Minh Trail all the way down. Yeah. I mean, that was a major development. I never heard that never before. But thanks to your research, I mean, we knew they had the base camps. And again, whenever we had a target, we specifically for that little target area. But you got the bigger picture. Yeah. But in addition to all the bin trams, they were static forces. They had mobile forces. They had an entire infantry division. They had three AAA regiments. And they had all these other units. So if there was a hot spot somewhere, they would use the, the roads and bring in anti-aircraft, more infantry and stuff like that. So Operation Tailwind was a diversion and to keep more people, more reinforcements from NVA reinforcements from getting down to the uh, CIA operation. Right. And then the another number you had in your book that, that gave me cause to pause was... By 1970, you had 90,000 NVA troops in Laos alone coming down the trail. And our numbers in 68 was around 25 to 30,000. And that was, an in, your numbers are an indicator of how they escalated that. And that included the sapper teams, the hunter killer teams that were designed just to go out to hunt and to kill SOG recon teams or to kill the Americas, leave the indigenous alive for psychological. Uh, purposes. Yeah. Well, when the trail started, actually in 1959, it was basically a trail with these guys pushing a bicycle loaded like yeah. a pack mule with 100 kilos of rice or ammo or whatever. By 1970, there were pipelines, there were gravel roads with bridges that they'd build like a foot under the water surface so you couldn't see them from the air. Sure. There were, Several uh, tele- in fact, one, one of my last <clears throat> missions was a mission just to find it, to photograph and, it. And to uh, wire it, so hoping you blow it up with yeah. an NVA truck yeah. line. You know? Yeah, they had uh, five <laughs> or six different pipelines, you know, uh, fuel, kerosene, uh, yeah. whatever, and they had telecommunications. It was it was a, a engineering marvel. Absolutely. They, yeah. And they, they came hard. And, you know, um, and that Ho Chi Minh Trail was first implemented when the Vietnamese were fighting the French. They had some of the earlier days, which was between – uh, 50 in 1954, of course, in May of 54 was when the Vietnamese and the Viet Minh pushed out. <clears throat> forced, they defeated the French at the final battle of Dien Bien Phu. Yeah. And from that point, the country was divided. Right. South was democratic, north was the communists, and of course, the communists wanted everything. Well, Mar- Marxism doctrine, you know, workers of the world re- unite, but it's, it's for the overthrow and violent overthrow is accepted. So yeah. in May of 59, they started the 559th Transportation Group to start this trail. And basically to bring in troops and supplies to overthrow the government of Cambodia, of Laos, and of South Vietnam. Sure. And the number 559 <clears throat> was May 59. Yes, yeah, May 59. Yeah. So this way, nobody can argue when they officially 
designated where yeah. we're going. But again, publicly, <clears throat> they never talked about it. They right. said, no, Laos is a neutral country. We have nobody there. Yeah. And a- a- after the war <laughs> ended in the later 70s, uh, from what I've researched or, or been led to believe, all the records for the 559th were pretty much destroyed. So that's why it's it's hard to get information about the 559th. Indeed. Yeah, there were some histories written. Uh, they, they wrote some <laughs> histories, but uh, it's it's a lot of it's been destroyed. And so then on your on this mission here, the team led by Captain McCarley had been on the ground for maybe an hour. They came across a major cache, and they they. Uh, that was uh, they got an intel coup there and then at one point the phone rang it did and then the the phone rang and uh, this is a telephone they're in Laos the phone rings the Captain Gene McCarley picked up the phone hello 5th Special Forces Group may I help you (laughs) (laughs) and to this day it must be somebody new in confusion up there in Hanoi figured wait a minute how'd that happen (laughs) yes someone speaking English but again that was a a major uh, successful part they got a lot of intelligence documents out of it and then the Special Forces um, excuse me the people in charge of putting their engineers mined it, put it in there with explosives and detonated everything. And then the uh, A1 Skywriters came in with napalm. I don't know if, if, uh, if any of the other um, units came in with support on that, but they destroyed that enemy cache. They, they did. They, they the had demo guys wired it up and they said they had secondary explosions for hours for hours yeah yeah it's just a major success right there within the first couple of hours uh, and then the other thing you pointed out in your book which i was not aware of the extent but other army cobra units and, and gun support ships and tell me a little bit more about that because the um just to expand that because you did it so well in your book well, there was a uh, 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 Army Huey unit uh, call sign Bikini, and the Cobras that covered them were the Pink Panthers. Uh, they, 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 man, their bread and butter was going across the fence. Right, they supported well, SOG for years yeah, too. Like well, in case any of us got shot down, they were there to pick us up, the, the Hueys and and the uh, uh, Cobras to cover them. Right. So they were involved in all of uh, all every. As a matter of fact, the. On the seventh, when we had a uh, your first briefing, the, the well, the mortar attack that was oh, a, right. that was a pink panther. Uh, so again, a cobra the mortar attack on so the cover of the book. That's a pink panther cobra that got got hit and right. So up. Uh, Contour <clears throat> is where CCC was located, but they had right. two launch sites, Docto, and there was a second launch site. Um, it'll come to me soon. But you're at Docto. We're at and Docto. on day seven, September seventh, incoming rounds. At the launch site, took out one of their gunships. Yeah, yeah. We we were there and overstayed our welcome. We got there late morning and and sat there for hours. And here's all these, you know, yeah, Cobras and CH 53s just there. It gave the bad guys. You know, how could they pass up such a target? So <laughs> I I was I was sitting on the roof of the uh, a, a bunker with a friend of mine, Pat Owen. And we're just sunning ourselves, taking selfies. Yeah. And, uh, one of our 53s was on the runway and we were borrowing some flechette rockets from the army because we could never get flechettes and we found cases of them. Yeah. So they were borrowing some flechettes and all of a sudden there's an explosion. And Joe Driscoll, who you know, sure. is on the back of this 53 and a guy named uh, uh, Joe Gallo 
the, the pilot pulls pitch. Joe Gallo comes tumbling out. Driscoll right. and another guy, they land on top of him. <laughs> Gallo ends up with a concussion and a broken arm. Yeah. And, uh, and then this Army Cobra got, got hit. And uh, Pete Gotch, the pilot of it, was he's he gets uh, as soon as the first mortar hit, he says to his his co-pilot, he says, "Let's go," meaning let's go to the bird. Yeah. Co-pilot thought he meant let's go to the bunker where everybody <laughs> else was running. So Pete goes to his aircraft, he unties the tail rotor, and here's a mortar coming. He hits the deck, and it lands on the other side of the runway. Goes around to the the front of the helicopter to square away the uh, co-pilot's gear so it won't be flying around the cockpit. Another one comes in. He hits the deck. It lands in front of the co- the the helicopter. He says, "Uh-oh, getting bracketed here." <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, so, yeah. So sure. then he's about to climb in the cockpit, and he hears another one come. So he gets down, hits the deck, and it lands right behind the stub wing in the rocket pod. Blows out the canopy. Blows out the cowling. Starts no. the rockets on fire. And he's laying there on the ground and said, oh, better get out of here. He, he does a low crawl to a ditch, and then he starts running. And and his his pic, the picture on the front of the book shows, shows uh, uh, the burning helicopter. But I, ha- I took that picture, and I had the slide for 50 years. I never noticed this guy running <laughs> along the ditch in the front until I heard from this guy, Pete, who yeah. uh, gave me a call and, and told me his story. It was just classic. It was great. And but, you had him on the front page. Yeah, yeah I put him on. The yeah. cover, yeah. yeah. But I'm on the ro- roof of the bunker, another aside, so I have always have a camera with me. I start taking pictures. Boom, explosion here, explosion there. The 53 taking off. I'm taking pictures. Then we say, we better get in this bunker. It's getting dicey. <laughs> we run down. Get A couple weeks later, I get my, my film developed, and I had taken beautiful pictures of the backside of the lens cover. Oh, no. Yeah, so I, I decided not to give up my day job and become a combat photographer right there. <laughs> that's not going to work. But uh-huh. I did get one shot from inside, and that's what's on the... on the. That's a great picture. Yeah. yeah it yeah, really is. Yeah. So day one was a success. <clears throat> that night, uh, per the mission statement, the they moved at night, and they had Spectre... Gunships. Now, Spectre was a C-130 for our listening audience. Gunships that had a platform that would link to the teams on the ground, and they could bring uh, 7.62 mini gunfire, mm-hmm. 20 mic mic uh, cannons. And uh, did they did they have the holsters that that back then in 1970? I, I don't think they did. Right, I, but I mean, whatever that... firepower they had, they could bring it as well as drop um, flares. They could. And so that would help. And again, the, the, the mission was to disrupt, to do any intel gathering, and they already destroyed a major cache, got intelligence from it, which they carried on through the next three days of the mission and returned back to base with it. And uh, so on day two, they were, um, in the early morning hours, the men of B Company could hear trucks and track vehicles in the distance. That meant, again, I'm going back to the book, that meant more NVA were coming to take up the hunt. So McCarley had his men on the move at first light. They were short on sleep and already running low on ammunition. As the troops departed their RON, which was the rest overnight site, they had a small skirmish with a squad of NVA, during which another American and one yard were wounded. 
A platoon of about 40 NVA attacked later in the morning, but B Company was able to break contact and continue to move. Within an hour, the determined enemy returned in force with a company of 150 soldiers attacked with machine guns, B-40 rockets, and mortars. McCarley called in the SPADs, and the SPADs was the co-side for A-1 Sky Raiders, to drive them back with CBUs, cluster bomb units, but not before one mounting yard was killed and another 15 were wounded. And that just gives you a sense of what they're up against on day two. Now, during a two-hour engagement in the afternoon, McCarley, the medic, uh, Gary Mike Rose, Jim Lucas, and uh, Adair were standing together. And this is the command element under McCarley. So each platoon mm-hmm. leader was there. And they were standing <clears throat> together when a B-50, sorry, a B-40 rocket sailed overhead, landed in a nearby bamboo thicket. Everyone was blown into the air and showered with hot shrapnel and needle-like bamboo splinters. While airborne, Rose remembers looking up and seeing his dirty jungle boots against the gray sky. Ignoring wounds to his head, hand, and foot, the medic began patching up the other soldiers. McCarley, suffering a leg wound, got on the radio and called in airstrikes to end the skirmish and allow the company to continue. And that's just a good flavor of what they're up against on the ground. It's just excellent, excellent work on your part. And um, the other side of this, like by the end of the day, they were trying to carry their dead with them because they always leave no man behind. And Mike Rose, who was the, uh, again, the only medic on this mission, and he, you captured what he said, how at one point, because their, the terrain was difficult and movement was too slow to keep up with the company, Rose realized almost immediately they could not carry the dead. And he made an agonizing decision. He told the yards to leave the dead behind. This would haunt him for the rest of his life. Years later, he would recollect, my mind drifts back over the years in this operation, and the thing I think about is that we left those guys behind. You don't even know their names. I can't remember their faces. I left them in the middle of nowhere, wrapped in a goddamn poncho. What a hell of a way to leave a couple of guys. And again, this is your writing here. It's just excellent. You caught the flavor of that moment. So for day two, you guys are back again. Even though you got your bird passed up, and <laughs> with the CH-53s, did, did the Cobras use the same thing as the CH-53s? Because Larry Grohl, who was the crew chief for one of the CH-53 Deltas, told how they use beer cans to cover up the holes. Well, yeah, you know, it, it's aluminum. <laughs> you can just cut cut a patch and put it over it and put a few rivets in. And, and you're good to go. You're good to go. <laughs> And do you remember any other uh, aspects from day two on this thing as, as the operation progressed? Well, actually, uh, uh, the 12th, which was day two, right? Uh, uh, we didn't go down there. Okay. The, the, but the Army tried to get in. And, uh, and they're get, going in for the wounded. Well, they, they left the three dead behind, but they had two litter patients. Right. And that was really slowing them down. And, and Gene McCarley's strategy of, of cat and mouse was he needed, he needed weather for air support and he needed mobility. And carrying these 
these uh, litter patients was even more difficult than carrying the bodies. Right. Because and the body, they just got a bamboo pole, put it in the poncho, put the body in the poncho, and, you know, you could be rough with it. But with the litter patients, it, it really slowed them down. So the and, Army was going to come in. And Mike Rose, the <clears throat> medic, had to keep uh, checking out their, their fluid levels, giving them painkillers occasionally as they moved. Right. So he's tending to them as well as the other members of the hatchet force that were getting wounded, patching up their wounds, Gene McCarley. And Mike Rose also had, <clears throat> like you documented, the wounds to his hand and to his foot. The one on his foot, the shrapnel went through the jungle boot and cut it. He wrapped it with an ace bandage or something, yeah. continued to march, and to this day his one hand cannot close yeah. because of the wound he received at yeah. that moment. But as a medic... He always joked about how the first couple of days he uses car 15 as a crutch. He it's did. like, whoa. Yeah. That gives you a flavor of what yeah. they're up against on the ground. Well, Captain Mack, as they called Gene McCarley, told yeah. him to bring five to ten times your normal amount of medical supplies. So everybody was carrying something. And the, the, the IV bags in plastic were a relatively new thing. He had some of those, but also had IV bottles. Right, and he'd try to hook up an IV bottle, gunfire, shatter them. So they ended up using the bags and just lay it on somebody's chest, and that's yeah. the best he could do. But think about that: <laughs> lessons learned yeah. in combat. Just giving somebody an IV that would only be a foot and a half above the right. person lying and on the ground gets blown away. Getting blown away, yeah, to give you a sense of the uh, the gunfire, the intensity of it that they're under, right, at different times in the day or night. Yeah, so it was pretty critical to get those litter patients and the more seriously wounded. And the Army came in on, on the second day, on the 12th, and uh, 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 Cobra's leading this Huey in, and the Cobra ended up getting shot down. Took about 50 hits, crashed. A guy named Bob Litwinski was flying it, and the, the brand-new CO, Major Henry, was in his front seat. Oh, is that right? <clears throat> yeah, he just, it just he was getting a feel for the lay of the land. Oh, welcome to it the was, Secret it, War, buddy. It was his second tour, but he, he was yeah. getting a feel for the AO. Yeah. And uh, they got shot down, so that called off that. Instead of a, a medevac, it became a uh, you know air crew rescue, and they, they picked them up, the Bikini Huey picked them up, and they— they, uh, uh, they, uh, they, they, yeah, Xville. And so, just a little bit here. What would a normal tactic be? So, your escort, just to say, we have a UE in this case, a CH fifty three is on day one. When they go in, your gunships come in alongside, <coughs> or would do a gun run first and then come back and parallel in with them. How would that normally work uh, if, if you had the terrain? To do yeah, it? we, we Marine Cobra uh, tactics were a little different than than Army tactics. We we had four Cobras, so we'd have uh, esc escort them in, and we generally set up a wagon wheel pattern around the the LZ. And then when he came out, two would two Cobras would peel off, escort that guy out, pick up the next one, and bring him in, while the two remaining would deliver close air support for the troops, for the on, troops the ground. on the ground. Now the Army ran a thing they call them the, the, the red and blue team. They'd take half. Two of their Hueys, if they had four, two of them would get, get higher and uh, two lower that were going to the LZ. And they'd just fly at treetop level, and the guy above would guide them and saying, okay, a little right, a little left, okay, you're, you're you know, a couple hundred meters out, okay, flare now. And they just couldn't even see the LZ maybe, and they come flare, landed in the LZ. And the reason they did that was... <clears throat> 
Well, the uh, the uh, air threat, the uh, you know fifty fifty one, the the twelve point seven. Uh, sure. And and then as the battle went on, they started bringing in AAA. Uh, from thirty-seven these, Mike, Mike, yeah, too. thirty-seven millimeter anti-aircraft guns from these mobile forces that they had. They had three different anti-aircraft regiments, so they were. This was a big operation with the CIA and stuff, and they were bringing stuff down the highway. And that, yeah, and again, uh, when President Johnson at the end of sixty-eight ended uh, the bombing campaign in North Vietnam, the next day the Congress were moving. All kinds of, yeah. in addition to troops and supplies, exactly more anti-aircraft, which yeah. made life much more difficult for aviators like yourself. Yeah, yeah. Anybody flying, and this is, even though this is the southern part of Laos, by then, it was, they had a, a lot of stuff down there to shoot helicopters down. Yeah, a, a, a 37 millimeter can, is a threat to a fast mover at 10,000 feet. If if it got a bead on you, a low fly, a slow <laughs> helicopter, you were toast. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's nasty. And I can <clears throat> remember because whenever we had our our briefings before a mission, the Covey, which would be the Ford Air Controller for us, the code name, he would come through and say, "Look, we know we have a thirty-seven Mike Mike here. Two days ago, we saw a twelve point seven, yeah. which is um, fifty caliber, yeah. point one or fifty-one caliber, fifty-one caliber, and." Yeah. Uh, so that was a critical part of the of the morning briefing before you go into a target, any target. Right. And uh, it only got worse. That's, that's for sure. The, yeah. The challenges for the aviators never ended. Yeah. And so um, you you also captured one other little scene here that I just got to go back to your book because I I never heard this before until I read your book. And again, I'm not going to be able to read the whole book today. I encourage everybody to get Operation Tailwind by Barry. And uh, in it, this is night two on the ground. And uh, Lucas was, uh, this is after they had combat back and forth. They had called in gun runs, they used Spectre. And so Lucas is on the ground and, quote, going back to the book, Lucas thought he heard some quiet moaning directly in front of his fighting hole and figured he might be able to snatch a prisoner. Without a sound, he slowly slithered out of his foxhole and crept forward in the darkness. He kept groping with his hand. After moving just a few yards, he touched something alive. Realizing it was somebody's arm, he grabbed it and started dragging the man back towards his foxhole. Suddenly... (laughs) Someone started to pull the wounded NVA soldier in the other direction. <laughs> thinking, distraction, thinking discretion, the better part of valor in this instance, Lucas released, released the arm and quietly returned to the perimeter. He later described it as, quote, one of those crazy things you don't want to think about anymore, close quote. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. How did you get that? That's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, after the years after this ended, Jim Moriarty, who you know, was, sure, was, was doing a documentary. Yes. And this was uh, 2002, I want to say, and did interviews. A fellow Marine who had three tours of duty three with tours the Marine Corps, as a, a as, including tours tour as gunner. a door gunner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was produce having this documentary produced and there were interviews with all these people so jim graciously allowed me access to all his uh, 
all his his tapes. And I, I got this story, you know, oh. when when Jimmy Lucas was interviewed. But that that was the night of the grenade battle. They they uh, McCarley had set up this perimeter, and in the middle was a bomb crater where Mike Rose had put most of his his wounded, right. and he's trying to tend to them, you know, in the dark as best he could. <clears throat> well, the uh, the NVA comes and they use bamboo sticks to uh, to signal, you know, one one click. They'd bang them together, move forward. Two clicks, bang, bang, throw your grenades. Three, retreat, right? So yeah. they, no one knows where anyone is and no one wants to fire because a muzzle flash is going to give it away. So this grenade battle breaks out and SF guys are throwing grenades that way, NVA's throwing them this way. And uh, they must have run out of grenades. They heard a truck coming and boxes being unloaded off of a truck. No more grenades no. are coming. But in one of these lulls. And these are NVA trucks. Yeah. yeah. In one of these lulls, <laughs> Jimmy Lucas decides, I, I hear some moaning out there. Yeah. That's, that's what he said. You know, it sounds like a good idea at the time. I'm going to crawl out there and see what I can see. See if I can grab a POW. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, also that night, you captured another scene where uh, they were working with Spectre. And Inspector's a gunship, the C-130 weapons platform that could bring the rounds as within 20 meters of a team or even closer if they asked for it. And so uh, Lucas and uh, Bernie Bright have been controlling Inspector gunship in front of their sector, and they were walking the rounds closer on each pass. <clears throat> Excuse me. And going back to the book, the Spectre pilot said he was running low on fuel and that he had time on station for two more passes. Jimmy Lucas tells the story. I told him from the last pass, bring it in 250 more meters. The pilot said, that's your position. I said, well, if you don't get us, they will. So bring it in. When he came in on the last pass, he was cutting down trees and they were falling over our perimeter. To me, that was what broke the contact for that night because after that, we didn't hear anything except them moving off. It was just about light, but I think if it hadn't been for him and his close air support, we'd have been overrun at first light in the morning. That's at the end of day two. Day two, yeah. Whoa. There were several instances where they, they came close to being overrun, you know, okay. The cat game of cat and mouse, they needed mobility in with these patients, the litter patients. They couldn't quite outrun the NVA. Right. So the air, air sport let them break contact, and they'd, they'd move on somewhere else. Man, oh, man. <clears throat> so by now, we begin day three, and day three, uh, you know, when Carly has his hands full, and um, they want to try to, again, to get some of the wounded out if possible. And um, by now... They're bringing down anti the 37 Mike Mike, anti-aircraft weapons. And uh, also, food was running low, but hunger was the least of their worries when being hunted by people bent on their annihilation. As supplies dwindled, ammunition became the biggest, ammunition became the biggest concern. All magazines from the wounded were distributed to those still fighting, and strict fire discipline was implemented and that's just you captured again so well the men on the ground that you guys are supporting there and uh, 
Did you ever get a sense of that from, you know, from being up in the air about how things work? Because you get your briefings in the morning. Uh, we we got it from the briefings. Not not once we were in the air. We were you know just busy doing what we were doing and didn't have long discussions with Gene McCarley or or anybody on the ground. Usually, we you oh, know, talk to Covey, but. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was becoming dire for for the as you would force. say it was a real shit show. It was a shit sandwich <laughs> we used to call it. <laughs> we'll get into a little bit more of the anachronism <laughs> a little bit later on here, and uh, so at some point the decision was made to bring in another CH fifty three Delta in from the Marine Corps to pick up the wounded, and um, the pilot was uh, Beardall. Beardall, yeah, and. Uh, so he was a lieutenant at the time, right? He was. He was the bull, bull lieutenant, the senior lieutenant in the squadron okay. at the time. So he's flying. <clears throat> um, they come down to, they finally find an LZ. And uh, again, back to your book. Beardall came to a hover above the zone. And as he began to descend vertically to the ground, he found himself in a tug of war with the major and yelled over the income, get off the controls, get off the controls. And this, he's dealing with a, uh, another officer, and he goes, he just wanted to get down. So, again, we're, we're quoting the book now. Sergeant Fullen, the crew chief, was looking for trees on both sides and guiding the bird on its vertical descent when they started taking heavy fire. The helicopter was about five feet off the ground, as Doc Rose and Cooch, Cooch was the indigenous uh, um, team member who supported Mike Rose. And Mike had been training him right. to become the, a, a team medic. Yeah. And uh, so Doc Rose and Cooch began braving intense enemy fire, attempted to pass the first litter patient up to Doc Paget, while Brown, another medic that was on the aircraft, held Patch's belt to keep him from falling out. Before the exchange, so imagine, they're just hanging it up. Five feet in the five air. Five feet in the air. It's a hover. Yeah. They're reaching up. And before the exchange could be made, the main rotor struck the tree on the left. Fighting severe vibration, Beardall aborted the attempt and began climbing out. And that's just... You know, that little moment in time, just hard yeah. to imagine. Yeah. And as they're going up, uh, the uh, RPG uh, came into the came into the cabin but didn't explode but didn't still had an impact inside. Right. Yeah. And um, the RPG miraculously did not explode but hit the ceiling, taking out several hydraulic lines. Seeing the red fluid streaming from the roof, Fallen yelled, Get on the ground now. A CH-53, this is the way you wrote this. A CH-53 without hydraulics is just like a large, free-falling chunk of metal dropping from the sky. There was no time to waste. That's right. <laughs> Lord. And then uh, what? There was one other thing. Beardall yells into the microphone, Mayday, Mayday. We're going in. Straight ahead was a suitable area. He began his approach, and just as he touched down, Beardall lost control of his entire rotor as the last of the hydraulic fluid was pissed overboard. 
He landed on a field of scrub and tall grass and began shutting down the engines as Major Carroll was securing the fuel and applying the rotor brake to no avail. By that time, they shut down the aircraft, and so everybody was able to successfully get out of that. And um, that, I think we had, during that scene, you also captured another uh, moment with... um, with Larry Grohl, who was uh, the door gunner on that. On the SAR aircraft that was coming in to pick them up. Very good. Thank you for that <clears throat> clarification. Because you, you just, I just love the way you document this with, your, with the book. And so Larry's on the door gunner, and he wrote, My heart felt like it had moved up my throat and was racing at a rapid-fire pace. As we made the descent to the crash site, My senses were at their best, my finger on the trigger, ready to go to work. As we got closer to the pickup site, I could see that it was surrounded by smoke that was laid down by the Cobras of Scarface, along with their rockets and 40 millimeters uh, uh, rounds to protect the crew on the down chopper. Just about the time we came into a hover over the down crew, what happened? Bam, 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 was all the sound I heard as the NVA opened up with a 51 caliber anti-aircraft gun on my side of the aircraft. They were about only 25 yards away from our bird when they opened up. I can't imagine that. A 50 caliber that close? The muzzle flash from their gun was used and seemed to be the size of a basketball. Without a second thought, I pulled back on the trigger of my M60 and then did not let up until the anti-aircraft gun crew was silenced. We started to bounce around, and I knew that we had taken some hits. I took a quick look towards the cockpit and saw both Mark and Rao fighting to keep us in the air. Good God, that's Larry. Yeah, that's Larry Crow, <laughs> right. So they were able uh, to land, <laughs> or no, they had no. to hover, cause they had, so take it from there a little bit further on day well, three. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, well, to the beginning of the mission, when, when Bill Beardall comes in, usually he'll have one pilot flying and the other is lightly on the controls. Well, the XO happened to be flying with him that day, Major Carroll. Right. And he's doing a little bit more than lightly and, and sort of trying <laughs> to fly the aircraft, and you can't have two people flying at once. So that's, no. <laughs> that's how that happened. They end up hitting the tree, took the RPG, and and uh, and they put it down and just just uh, lost tail road or authority as they hit the scrub brush. But the SAR bird was uh, a guy named Mark McKenzie, and they were orbiting a few clicks away. And uh, our CO Harry Sexton uh, calls for the SAR bird, and they had their their tail to the situation, didn't know where it was. So Colonel Sexton puts down a few uh, smokes to mark the area. Yeah, yeah. And there's a p- the picture in the book of the, the bird sitting in the zone and some smokes out there. So Mark McKenzie comes in, and they had this uh, ladder on the back, an extract ladder. It's about six foot wide, had three uh, steel cables with aluminum rungs on it, 80 feet long. And they just roll it right out the back ramp, and it hangs down. So they came in next to the, the Beardall's bird, and as soon as they hit the ground, uh, the, uh, the two SOG medics, uh, uh, Paget and Brown, and the crew chief and the gunners came out and set up a perimeter while, while the pilots are shutting down the aircraft. They all go out, clip onto the ladder. 
uh, uh, Beardall's the last guy on the ladder, and he's down at the bottom. He, he weighs 140 pounds. He's a, a small guy. <laughs> weighs 140 pounds, yeah. and he sees the end of the as they're as they're taking off. He sees the bottom of this thing starting to the ladder, uh, the yeah, aluminum starting ladder. A, aluminum ladder floating, you know, flapping in the breeze. And he thinks, "Geez, I hope it doesn't come up and hit the tail rotor." <laughs> so he decides, "I better climb down near the end so I can put some weight." <laughs> Weight on the end. All 140 pounds. All 140 pounds of him. So he, he starts to climb and he says, no, no way. Forget that. And he, and he stopped. Oh. But there's a picture. It's kind of fuzzy, but you see all these guys on the ladder. Right. And then a ways down, you see this last little blur blob. And that, that's Bill Beardall. But Mark McKenzie's flying it. And they were getting hoses or hovering there with the ladder. And the guy's hooking on. And he says to the crew chief, Make sure everybody is on the ladder because I don't want to come back here. <laughs> yeah, no <Yeah>. kidding. <laughs> and they they took off, and then they had some hydraulic fluctuations. Sure, because the, so the rescue aircraft that yeah, rescued the, the, the yeah, downed the, aircraft. So the Sawbirds <clears throat> having problems, so they find a place, an opening, and they come, and you got to gently lay down and kind of move forward so the ladder kind of lays out along the ground and the and the guys can unhook and then a third another 53 comes in and lands next to them everybody gets on that and the crew chief says no i think we we can make it otherwise they were going to abandon that aircraft too that's larry grohl yeah larry grohl we would have lost two in one day they really piss off the heavies so they said the crew chief says no i think we can make it and and they left but the so it was kind of two pickups within 10 minutes you know, yeah. or, or less. And that's just amazing. Then when Larry <clears> got <throat> back, I think that he found that the state of that CH-53 <clears throat> needed a lot more maintenance. Yeah. From, it, they had some very yeah. strategic um, damage. Yeah, they were lucky to make it back. They were so lucky. Yeah. yeah. But again, just another day in soccer. Yeah, another day across the fence. <laughs> <laughs> so, so again, that night, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of day three, they are on the ground. They move during the day, and they move that night. And again, there's intense. Oh, I forgot. Day three, there was attempts to do a resupply. Tell me about that, because there, well, there was two separate attempts. Yeah, two. Two. Well, one, the uh, uh, Covey, uh, they came out of play coup, and uh, they said, "Well, we got to get these guys resupplied somehow or other." So they, they. Uh, Back at the squadron, they come up with this plan. They got some, uh, found an old cargo parachute, got some duffel bags, filled one with gas masks, one with claymores, and one with ammunition. They tied them all together to this uh, cargo parachute, put them in the back in an OV-10. They took the, there's a clamshell door off of this little cargo compartment in an OV-10. You know what that looks like. Sure. Put a SOG guy in there. Said, well, we're going to fly over them, the hatchet force. When I turn on the green light, he tells the saw guy, just kick out this parachute. So they fly over, over, green light goes on, he kicks out the chute, drogue chute comes out and disintegrates in a puff of green smoke. It was just dry rotted, so it never pulled out the other chute. The whole bundle goes into the hillside where the NVA is. So Covey spends most of the afternoon running airstrikes on that hillside to keep keep the enemy from getting all the claymores and the ammunition and stuff. Then later, the Army thought they could come in with the Huey and get at least those two uh, uh, litter patients. Right. 
and they came in and gave it a try. And uh, I didn't know this until after I wrote the book, and I heard from from uh, this fella down in in Florida, Woody uh, Woodall, I think his name yes. was. And he's in the Cobra. They're bringing in this Huey, and they got shot up so much they they limped back home, and it was unsuccessful. So there there were three attempts on that day on the thirteenth to get him out. And, and meanwhile, Sog, the hatchet force, is just kind of getting into extremis. Right, and they're they're talking about trying to get a <clears throat> combat spear mission, which is, I, I've never heard that term before. Uh, combat spear was a, a, a special C-130 operation uh, for resupply. It's this low level. You fly right down the runway or right over the LZ. You like few they feet did up, at Quezon. At, yeah, like they did at Quezon. You have a little chute. Pulls, extracts the pallet right off. Right. And they just flood. They don't land or anything. They fly 10 feet off the ground, pull the load out, and take off. Combat spear usually required a 48-hour uh, lead time. But Mac V. Uh, Sog went right to Admiral McCain, who was sink pack, had the whole Pacific Command. Uh, Admiral right. McCain's son, John McCain, was a POW in North Vietnam at the time. They sent a, a, a message to him, right, and he said, okay, you're approved for this combat spear drop. And it was actually going to be 3,700 pounds on the morning of the 15th at 1 o'clock in the morning. And it was only two and a half clicks from where they were. Uh, and they were going to resupply him with 3,700 pounds of, of equipment and stuff. That but was that was the, scheduled that, for the 15th. Actually, yeah, just past midnight at 1 o'clock in the morning. So day four. That was the plan. Yeah, indeed. Like all <laughs> indeed, good plans. All good plans. <laughs> so and, and during that night, again, they were in heavy combat. And um, they worked the, um, Spectre during the night between flares, gun runs. And the team did move at least once or twice. And so they come to day four. Day and four. day four is September the 14th. September and, 14th. And yeah. uh, uh, again, your book said that SOG had a relatively quiet night with intermittent probing. But there was two major developments. First, the NVA continued to bring in additional reinforcements. Now, again, I'm returning to the book, and today we won't be able to cover the entire book, but there's a lot in it that we can at least make a reference to. And here... Is, this is documenting that mission. Um, Captain Mack was unaware of some other developments, but first the NVA continued to bring things south. The second development was the uh, same bugaboo they had faced with the landing, the weather. As the wet season dragged on, the forecast called for a low ceiling for the next several days, making air support questionable. Without air support, the grunts were toast. And that's, you captured the essence yeah. of that moment. They, they needed mobility, which they didn't have because of the litter patients, <clears throat> and they needed air support. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had briefed on the night of the uh, 13th at 2100. Really? We briefed, and it was going to be a medevac and resupply once again. For day four. For day four. But, <clears throat> excuse me. Day four opened up uh, low ceilings, heavy fog. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, low ceilings, heavy fog, and Covey couldn't get in. 
There were two spads from Da Nang tried to get in at, at first light. They had to turn around and come back. McCarley is more troops are coming in and he's basically surrounded and he makes a, a, a perimeter for a, a last stand. A second set of spads, spad three and four, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, take off from Da Nang and it's a guy named Tom Stump. Right. Uh, Tom Stump's leading it, and Chris uh, Tashisha, I think was his co-pilot's name. The weather's really bad, but they take off, and they just fly off a navigational aid called a VOR out to Nang. They fly out uh, a 236-degree radial. But let me interrupt for a second, because before he got in that defensive posture, (coughs) earlier in the day, earlier day four, he was able... The team came to a second enemy cache, and uh, you documented that that mm-hmm. well too. And uh, they found numerous hooches and bunkers. It appeared it was a major headquarters complex. There were sleeping quarters that had bunks with mattresses stacked three high, and other bunkers with truck parts and stores of rice. There was also a mess hall, and um, the. The Captain Mac got a call to come and look at an underground command bunker. When he arrived, he found a room with map-covered walls. On one wall, a framed picture of Ho Chi Minh was prominently displayed, but the treasure trove was footlockers full of documents, records, code books, currency, and logs. The captain ordered his men to pack up as many of the documents as they could carry as he emptied his own rucksack and filled it with papers. As the men left the bunker, one of the yards came out and handed Sergeant Schmidt the photo of Ho Chi Minh, which they brought back. And uh, <clears throat> it took less than an hour to clean it and search all the buildings. The demo team's guys went to work as SOG moved out. They blew the place sky high. Then also, there had been only the only presence of NVA sword were the stay-behinds. And they were just no match for Captain McCarley's troops. They pushed them all out. They got their documents. Again, that was part of this great intel coup that -hmm. they pulled off. And afterwards, as they moved forward, that was when they got to this position where uh, the weather was lousy. And it was a shit sandwich in the making for the hatchet force because of the bad weather. After the successful morning... And that was when they got into that defensive posture, <clears throat> and um, they I, we got to talk about Operation Location Alpha Alpha, or O L A A, and that was the the group of SPAD pilots from the Air Force, so named as one of the most uh, obscure titles for a tactical air unit I've ever heard. <laughs> the Operation Location Alpha Alpha. And the commanding officer was Lieutenant Colonel Mel Mel Swanson. And this small detachment of 10 A-1 Sky Raiders and a dozen pilots was a tight-knit group based in Da Nang. And there were other squadrons that were in Thailand that were separate. But the OLAA had two sections of A-1s ready at sunrise. And uh, so this is where now... The team is in their defensive posture on the ground. And Tom Stump and his wingman, um, <clears throat> Lieutenant Chris 
Tatisha is flying together. And the key thing was to be able to link McCarley with the Spads. And Stump got, again, going back to the book, Tom Stump, this is the name of the pilot we're talking about here, got to the general area by navigating off of a, of a Da Nang signal. The ceiling was low, as low as 500 feet. Visibility less than a mile obscured all landmarks. When he got close to the hatchet force, he called McCarley on the FM radio and used his automatic direction finding to lock in on Captain Max radio transmissions as he dodged mountains and enemy gunfire. I mean, good God. So once he finally located the now surrounded hatch force, hatchet force, Stump checked in with McCarley, who said they were under heavy fire. They were in that perimeter you mentioned, and the envy had massed <clears throat> and were making a final push to annihilate the Americans in the yards. Without air support and low on ammo, their hours were numbered. And again, going back to the book, when McCarley heard Stump on the radio, he directed the A-1s to his position and began running the close air support. McCarley started the A-1 runs about 50 meters from his perimeter and kept walking. He kept walking them in closer on every pass. Seeing the friendly's location, Stump called McCarley and said, we're getting mighty close. With the NVA closing, McCarley said, bring it in close. Put it in my hip pocket. Which pocket? Right or left, responded Stump. <laughs> Stump and, T- and Tatisha made passes so near to the SOG troops that the ejected shell casings from their 20 Mike Mike cannons was falling on them. Later, Tom Stump recalls my wingman and I took quite a bit of ground fire, including RPGs, and I could hear the automatic weapons and explosions of the ground attack on the team through Gene's radio. It was obvious the bad guys were closing, were using the bad weather to try to overrun them. The original mission was to evacuate a couple of wounded, but it became clear to me that we had to get them out or we were going to lose them. I didn't know at the time that they had found a large cache of intelligence and that the bad guys wanted to keep them from getting away with the documents. Another key aspect. All I could tell was there were a lot of bad guys. The team was completely surrounded. The NVA were serious about taking them out. Stump then called Hillsboro, which was the Airborne Command <clears throat> Control Ship that flew over the AO and the radio relay and he told him if you don't get them out now they're not getting out and so that went on then the RPG firing positions and driving the NVA back this allowed the hatchet force to break contact with the uh, enemy for a moment the weather began to improve and just before the A1s ran out of ordnance Covey pilot Gary Green and his Covey rider arrived with one A1 from the NKP to continue the attack. Afterwards, the NVA hordes that were chasing the hatchet force, the Covey rider called McCarley and said, you got to get them out now. 
If it hadn't been for Tom Stump and Chris Takisha, it's likely the hatchet force would have been overrun. Exactly. That just shows you the gravity <clears throat> of that moment. Yeah. And you, it's just so well written. Yeah. And, and, and it, you know, as you said, Gene McCarley's on, on the move before sunrise, before first light. And they- Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. They, they, they attacked that base camp. That's when the first two spads were trying to go and Covey's trying to get in and they can't get in. Then later on, Tom Stump gets in just when things are really going to shit for, for Gene McCarley oh, and his yeah. hatchet force save the day and uh i i think if it weren't for tom stump and 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 chris that the you know they they might have been overrun they might not have made it out well yeah and for and for any of our viewers um we interviewed uh captain rose and and uh that is uh sogcast number zero zero eight and that is Mike's perspective, and he agrees with you 100%. <clears throat> Had it not been for Stump at that moment, Gene McCarley, they would have been overrun. Yeah. And Tom Stump says Gene McCarley was, yeah, you know, there was no Covey. Covey couldn't get in because of yeah. the weather. And uh, uh, this this ADF function that, that you, you read, you can turn this switch on your radio, FM radio, to ADF. It's automatic direction finding. So when someone keys their mic, this needle points right where it is. So... <clears throat> Stump's flying out here 71 miles from Da Nang, calling on the radio. When he hears McCarley, he flips in and he says, okay, they're over this way, and, and then goes around the mountains and finds them, and, and they save the day. But uh, it yeah, was and touch is, and go. And it's like, Mike, we never knew they had that capacity. Again, yeah. here's the old World War II warplane yeah. that was used in the Korean War. <clears throat> and during the Vietnam War, when any of our teams were on the ground, they preferred spads and of course the gunships but oh, they yeah. come in so close yeah and they had such loiter time the fast movers could give you you know 10 minutes on station and right tom stump could hang out <laughs> all day well then <clears throat> so thanks to that attack b company was able to move but the nva remained in hot pursuit and the company was in dire straits without a doubt because mike rose was now caring for nearly 50 wounded he was out of medical supplies he began sharing each morphine surette among four casualties. So instead of giving a casualty a full surette, he would give him a little bit. A little pinch. And using the same needle, which yeah. anybody yeah. at the That's medical verboten. school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, verboten. <laughs> sure. yeah. Right. And uh, this just goes on. And um, they make contact. They finally <clears throat> get to the... Get, they find an LZ, they're able to move to the LZ, carrying the wounded, carrying the intelligence, papers, maps, everything. They get to the LZ, and um, are you involved in any of that as you as with the, with the support? Because now they're, the weather's breaking, now they get conventional air cover in there uh, without having to have Tom Stump pull a miracle to get below the clouds and see them. Yeah, well, well as I said, the night <clears throat> before we briefed, and it was going to be a resupply and extract. Uh, 
Right. Okay, medevac. What did that change then? <clears throat> well, in the morning when Tom Stump got in there and he saw the situation and called Hillsborough and said, if you don't get them out now, they're not getting out. And then the weather improved a little and Covey got in there and that's when Covey Ryder talked to Gene McCarley, who was under the impression they were just going to get a medevac and resupply and he'd continue the fight. Right. But uh, Covey Ryder says to Gene, you got to get out now. So by morning of the 14th, when we brief, instead of being a medevac as we briefed the night before, said, no, well, it's, a, it's an extract, they're in extremis, we're going to have to use CS and to gas the area and hopefully stand a chance of getting them out. And, uh, and, and that's when it's changed. And, and that's when they, they then sent a message to uh, Hawaii to uh, cancel the combat spear. Yeah. <laughs> I, on my website, I found those messages. So Is I have right? copies of the request and the, the uh, coordinates for it and the cancellation of it. So yeah. that all happened within a 24-hour period. From, and what's your website? Uh, BarryPensick.com. Keep it simple. Yeah. Very good. As Pensick, P-E-N-C-E-K. Even I can remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but you just went over a key part of this discussion in the briefing. Gas mass. CS is tear gas. CS is tear and gas. And they were preparing to use that because situation was so desperate on the ground that they were going to use that. And again, you mentioned that in your book how uh, we were again giving gas masks just before we departed Contum. The M24 Aviator's gas mask had an, in, had an integral microphone built into it that allowed a pilot to plug into the aircraft radios to communicate while maintaining an airtight seal around the face. It also had smooth head straps that fit comfortably. What was it like flying with a gas mask? Well, you know, you sh- common sense says you should never try something for the first time in the middle of a <laughs> in the middle of firefight. But they gave us these gas masks. We're we're I never even tried it on or anything. We're we're approaching the area and they say mask up. Some guys got aviation gas masks. You put it on, you put your helmet over it, and you plug your mic in. So there's a microphone in the mask, and you can talk yeah. on the radios. You got to go. We got these old Mark 17, the grunt masks. Well, you put it on, there's these big buckles up right. on top. You adjust. Sure. There's, there's no mic, oh. you know. So put my helmet on, and immediately I feel this excruciating pain, like someone's sticking a screwdriver in my head, you know, where these buckles are, <laughs> because you got these form-fitted helmets. Yeah. And then we're trying to talk, so we get our boom mic and pick up the mask and stick it in there. Well, first we tried holding the mic to our throat to see if we could communicate, and it didn't work. So we picked up the mic, stuck the mic in there, but then you break the seal. So what's the? It, it's of no use. Sure. So we just took off the mask, said the hell with it. Is that right? Yeah, and that's what most. That, that's what the other, all the other crews did on the Cobras, and some of them on the fifty uh, threes. So at some point. Um, now you're heading towards the LZ. You're escorting you and the other gunships are escorting the CH-53 Deltas from the Marine Corps <clears throat> heading to pick up the, this team. And on the ground, A-1 Skybridges came in and made runs with cluster bomb units, CBU-30 dispensers that were dropped and that had tear gas. 
And so the team on the ground, some men got their masks on, some didn't. But more importantly, it disoriented the NBA enough so that by the time you get there, um, and again, this is your book about you, as we near DLZ, and again, you're supporting the, the, the ships in that Marine Corps fashion tradition, going in, guarding them. The fast movers are dropping heavy stuff on the highway and surrounding ridges, silencing anti-aircraft guns, or at least diverting their attention away from us. The A1Es were unloading within a couple hundred meters of the SOG perimeter. We brought in the first transport and set up a tight left orbit around the LZ, firing outward at the attacking horde. The bullets hitting the helicopter sounded like popcorn popping, and I scrunched down in the armor seat just a little bit more as I fired the chunker. And what's your chunker, the 40 mic mic? 40 mic mic, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. How many rounds do you think? Yeah. Do you ever count how many bullet holes from that day? Uh, no. No. <laughs> no we, we just had it. But, <laughs> we just had them. I mean, that description yeah. sounded like popcorn popping. And this is yeah. you escorting the CH-53 Delta yeah. in. But, you know, it's it's kind of a funny thing. We we had lousy weather, and the forecast was even worse. And it was horrible in the morning, uh, as evidenced by Tom Stump barely getting in. But uh, as if by magic, as we got there, the weather improved and improved and improved. And we had been promised fast movers. They said stacked all the way to heaven. And we never had any for the first three days. And on the last day, it was a thing of beauty. It was, you know, concentric rings, the fast movers bombing out here. And, and the well, particularly A1s going in the for middle. the anti-aircraft. Yeah, trying to silence <clears throat> that. And you're still getting <clears throat> in with small arms fire yeah. at the minimum. It was wonderful. And you also captured a, another moment in time here. Again, going back to the book to Sergeant First Class Bernie Bright of the 3rd Platoon, he carried a two-foot by two-foot orange signal panel in his rucksack to mark DLZ. Disregarding his own safety, he took the panel from his pack, stood up in the middle of the LZ, and held it to his chest to guide in the first aircraft under enemy fire. Yeah. And he didn't get shot. Mm-mm. And, <laughs> and, and did it again. Right. Well, yeah. And, and of course, Bernie thought that because of the first day mission, they used four helicopters. He had thought there's going to be four helicopters coming in that day mm-hmm. to pick everybody up. And you had somehow with, you, with your interview here, going back to the book, one down, three to go, thought Bernie Bright as the first aircraft departed. Between arriving helicopters or when one was sitting on the ground, Bright stuffed his orange panel in his shirt turned, dropped to one knee, and resumed firing his car 15 at the advancing enemy. At the second bird approach, Bright stopped firing, turned around, and again stood up, exposing himself to enemy fire, and held up his orange panel. The fire crew, the fire grew more intense as Bill Jones and Bernie Sierra and the second bird homed in on Bright's orange panel as bright remembers it he attempted to land on me with his nose wheel and i did my best to roll out of his way (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure what he was doing was listening to the crew chief in the back 
telling him to move forward. My feet were tangled up in the grass, so it was difficult for me to move anywhere really quick. I remember looking at the two pilots sitting in the helicopter looking out the window, and they had their visors down on their helmets. It looked like a couple of guys sitting at a red light waiting for the light to change. That's what went through my head. Just one of those strange things that popped into my head. <laughs> That's just so well done. And uh, so then Bernie, getting going back to Bernie's thought process. Two down, two to go, thought Bernie, as the second helicopter lifted off from the zone. The third 53 was flown by 21, 22-year-old Don Persky, a prior enlisted Marine with an Earl Flynn mustache who had come up through the enlistment commissioning program. Bill Batty was the co-pilot, and 20-year-old Sergeant John Snipes from South Carolina was the crew chief. Snipes had named, I'm sorry, Snipes had named his bird Mutter's Worry and hoped it would make it through the day without too much damage. So this is the third bird coming in. Bernie Sticken is going to be four. And that's just a funny line. And so after the helicopter landed, Bright once more turned, dropped to one knee, and began firing at approaching NVA. <sighs> Such valor. Yeah. Crazy. And, and he survived that. I mean, <clears throat> he did. <laughs> and so uh, from there. Um, well, that's when he saw Gene McCarley and the Morris Adair and others running for the helicopter and said, well, wait a minute, this must be the last last ride out of Dodge. <laughs> so so he turned around and started running toward the rear of the helicopter, <laughs> ducking under the windows as the yards are firing out the, 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 the uh, windows. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so there, one of the things that happened too, because of the tear gas, it had its impact. It really disoriented some of the NVA soldiers mm -hmm. because McCauley and Rose all said how they were so close to that tail because the back men could run up that tail to get into the CH-53. They were NVA so close that they could have thrown hand grenades. But fortunately, they had enough rounds to kill these guys as they were approaching them. Yeah. And they're able to get on. Bernie finally realized, oh, this could be the last bird out. He gets on the helicopter and um, it takes off. So as it's lifting off, um, who was the, was it the Marine door gunner? Was it Snipe or someone else? As it's lifting off, a round shot one of the Marine Corps a crew chief or a door gunner. Stevens. Was it Stevens? Shaky, shaky Stevens, they call him Shaky. <laughs> He, he had this penchant Tell us for, what happened. <clears throat> well, he, he had this penchant for uh, Western novels. He always had a Louis L'Amour uh, paperback in his oh, is that flight right? suit. Yeah. <laughs> well, he took a round through, right through the neck. And he falls down and he's gurgling into the open mic. So this is the third bird. And we don't know that everybody's on the bird. Oh, is that right? Because we have a fourth one standing sure. by to come in. We use four to put them in, four to take them out. So our CO, Colonel Sexton, is trying to call Persky and say, do you have everybody? Do you have everybody? And can't get through because here's Shaky Stevens gurgling into this. In, uh, from in, his blood. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, from his blood. So uh, uh, we uh, Sexton held up the last 53. 
he went over to the zone, made a low pass over the zone, looked at it, got hosed down, and said, looks like everybody's out. Yeah, and so, and you captured so well, because <laughs> here's this Marine who's been shot through the neck. He was bleeding like a stuck pig. Rose removed the wounded man's helmet to treat him. He stabilized his neck as best as he could to keep it from flopping. Having seen the severe bleeding that often comes with neck runes, Rose put Stevens on his knees so he wouldn't inhale blood. Then he saw the look on the Marine's face and knew Stevens was going into shock. Not knowing what to do, Rose remembered something he was told in medic training by an old SF Master Sergeant. Make them pissed at you. So pissed that they want to hit you. Rose leaned down and yelled in Stevens' ear, Look, you stupid son of a bitch. If you were going to die, you'd be dead by now. Steven stabilized. <laughs> what a, it's that classic yeah. moment in time. Yeah. Oh, my God. You captured that so well <clears throat> in your book. But it, it was a million-dollar wound. Can you imagine a round going through your neck, didn't hit the jugular veins, the esophagus, the trachea, spine. When, in one, he, he was bleeding profusely. Oh, yeah. He spent three days in the hospital, and that was it. Crazy. <laughs> so, again, we've uh, so this aircraft as it's taking off, and we're in mountainous layoffs. One engine goes out. Yeah, as they're on the ground, one engine goes out. Oh, they're right on yeah, the ground. Yeah, gets shot out. Yeah. So, oh my God. So Persky's taking off, gently milking one. As the perimeter's collapsing, the last guy gets on. Uh, Gene McCarley said five NVA come crawling through the weeds, through the elephant grass, and he, the three old men, he and uh, 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 Bernie Bright, Bernie Bright, and uh, I think it was Adair, Adair, yeah, he was- mowed them down. And because uh, Gene often said to me, I, I never understood why they didn't just throw a grenade, throw a grenade in. They were that right? close, but yeah, uh, any. So they're climbing out. Crew chief is uh, Doug uh, is uh, uh, Snipes. I forget his first name, but uh, Persky says, "Okay, remove your masks." They're a few thousand feet in the air. Remove your masks. He takes his mask off, leans back, and says, "That was great." Pulls out some cigarettes, <clears throat> starting to light a smoke, no. and the SF guys start screaming at him and pointing to the ceiling. And here's fuel just raining down from the ceiling, just. <laughs> Yeah, which knocked out the first engine. So yeah. they flew over one mountaintop. And again, we're nearby these mountains are nothing but a crash site. They're potential crash sites, yeah. sides of mountains. They go over a second mountain range. And as they get over it, or right before, right after they get over the second range. Take well, well they're, they're climbing out, and <clears throat> the, the fuel's coming down. <clears throat> Persky's call gets a to call uh, the lead aircraft and said, we may have, we have wounded on board. We may have to go to Contum, right to the hospital. And all of a sudden, the second engine quits and it's quiet as a church. So they're coming down. Well, on, on helicopters, the important thing is your rotor RPMs. People always say to you, keep your turns up, keep your turns up. It's like telling a fighter, fighter, Which we fighter, call auto pilot, rotation. Yeah, watch your six, you know, because in an auto rotation, you're, you're falling through the air, and the wind coming up through the rotor blade keeps your turns up. So you want to keep your turns up. So he, uh, uh, Persky calls Mayday, waiting for someone to 
there's a pregnant pause. He's waiting for someone to say. You got to well, get the collector. So yeah, you got to lower it to lower the yeah. pitch on the blades so that it'll keep spinning as you're falling down. And he wait a pregnant pause, waiting for someone to say, "Well, there's an opening, an LZ off to the left or the right," and no one says <laughs> anything. It's just jungle. So he has a choice. He can shoot an auto to the top of the jungle canopy, and you want your turn. <coughs> excuse me, your turns up. And then what you do at the bottom, you flare to stop your forward speed and your rate of descent. And and you flare, you lower the nose, and then you pull up the collective and use all that built-up energy in the rotor yeah. system to stop yourself. But he'd be shooting a, an auto to the top of a canopy, which could be 100 or 150 feet in the air. And then you're just going to come through the trees or whatever. Right. Well, there's a ridge line there. And he says, well, I can make it over the ridge line if I bleed off a little my RPM. So he pulls up on the collective a little to make it over the ridge line, hoping for a better day on the other side. Yeah. Gets over the ridge line, and here's this steep ravine with a river in the bottom. But Batty, his co-pilot, remembers RPM was about 85%. He didn't have all his turns. So they come down. Persky says, I think we got to land in the water. And Batty says, well, no, we got wounded on board. So there's this little sandy area to the left of the water. Shoot an auto there, and it's a hard landing. The thing hits, rolls over, breaks in half. <clears throat> it's like everyone's topsy-turvy turned upside down. And, uh, and uh, uh, Batty uh, has a broken back. He's the things on its side baddie's hanging in his straps above persky the guys in the back are just topsy-turvy mike rose starts <clears throat> throwing people out leading them out going back in there's fuel raining everywhere fortunately it didn't burst into flames oh my god they're pulling all these people out meanwhile uh the saw bird comes in and a guy named tucker is flying it and there's not room to land so he kind of hovers over the water puts one wheel on a rock the other, the nose wheel and the other main mount are in the air. And he lowers the ramp to the riverbank, and they start loading these guys on. Batty gets out the window or out the door, falls in the grass, and he can't move. And he's yelling because he's, he said, they're all, they're all leaving, and I'm going to be stuck here in Laos. And he can't move. Upside with, down with a broken back. <clears throat> with a broken back. He said some yard comes along. He said the kid looked like he was 12 years old. Snatches him like it was a loaf of bread, just grabs him, drags him, drags him to the helicopter and puts him in there like it was no effort at all. Wow. Yeah. And then you also you captured, <clears throat> getting back to Mike Rose again for our medic, in the rear of the smoldering helicopter, Doc Rose began throwing equipment out of the back to get to the wounded. Unfortunately, Keith Plastic was standing in the way. <laughs> several, he took several hits from flying gear. One at a time, Rose would grab a wounded soldier, hang a rifle around his neck, and push him towards the rear where another American would pass the confused man along bucket line, bucket brigade style, until everyone was out. Later, Captain Gene McCarley said to Rose, considering the leaking fuel and smoking aircraft, that was probably a dumb thing to do. <laughs> But they got everybody out. Yeah, how many lives did he save right there? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> one one yard was killed. Right, because that and that yard was standing next to Gene McCarley on the LZ as people are loading up. There's gunfire 
and he's standing right next to Gene, and he's killed. Oh, he was shot in the head. He he lived. There was a yard killed. It was uh uh uh, uh who's it was. I forget his name. They call him Che because they reminded him of oh, right. Che, che Guevara. Guevara. Right. Yeah. But uh, the aircraft split open when it rolled over, and his head was crushed under the under the fuselage. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. So um, that was this historic moment in time. The next uh, day or two later, there's a party at Contum CCC, and uh, um, everybody got together to celebrate and uh, um, from there, your involvement, how did all this begin? What led you to the Marine Corps to become an aviator? Oh, uh, <clears throat> a funny thing is, since I've written this book, I've reconnected with a bunch of people that I've, I've never knew or hadn't heard from in 50 years or so. Really? As a, as a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, Scranton, yeah. PA, uh, I was just a local hoodlum, didn't, you know. <laughs> ADD kid didn't didn't make great grades or anything. I'm on the street corner shooting hoops. We had a basketball goal we put on the light pole, and this kid comes walking by who was a, in the neighborhood and he was a couple years older than me and he's in a Marine uniform, and uh, his name's Pete Lipo, and he's telling me about flight school, and says uh, ex this describing an instrument approach. You're under this hood and you're flying on instruments. Then the instructor says, "Pop the hood." You pop it back, and there's the runway right in front of you. And I said, "This is the greatest thing you can do with your clothes on." I mean, this is amazing. <laughs> That's what I want to do. So I'm a senior in high school. Next week, I went down to the Marine recruiter and said, "Offered myself up to be a pilot." You know, and the guy laughed and said, "Son, you got to go to college to be a pilot." <laughs> So it was a, they had a two-year program called the MARCAD, Marine Cadet Program. That's what Pete was in. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I said, okay, put me in, coach. I don't smoke, you know. Yeah, And, yeah. Uh, and eventually they, they did away with that, and I ended up having to graduate from college, ended up in uh, 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 Pensacola, went to flight school. Uh, and at the same time, there was such a demand for uh, rotor heads at the time that we were sending tons of people to the army and fixed wing people were sending to the air force. They were, they were so overloaded that the demand was such for pilots. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we had a, of our squadron, we had a bunch of people were army trained and others were, were Marine trained. Any, any major differences between, uh, <clears throat> did you ever compare like, yeah. I did this <coughs> or you did that or, <laughs> uh, actually upon graduation an army trained, Rotorhead is a much more experienced helicopter pilot because we started in a T-34, an airplane. Then you graduate to the T-38. To be a, quote, naval aviator, you had to hit the boat. You had to land on an aircraft carrier Whoa, right. to earn your wings of gold sure. and all that. So I was in flight school for a year, and nine months of it was in fixed wing. Then the last three months, they say, okay, now you transition to helicopters well of course you've just you've just landed on the on on an aircraft carrier you got an ego the size of montana oh, you know course. i'm the greatest thing since sliced bread and they put you in this helicopter and it's like you know a monkey with a football you know like you're trying to balance yourself on a football while not spill your beer or something it's holy mackerel it just deflates your ego in a heartbeat but you pick it up <coughs> but as far as by the time you get your wings uh, I'd say the average Army pilot, I think, had 
260, 275 helicopter hours. And allow I, me to go back to your we book hardly here. had any because you captured <clears throat> you captured this so well. Um, you're now starting your first introduction to the helicopter training. I discovered the helicopter was a different beast, and in about a nanosecond, my ego <laughs> my ego was deflated as as I tried to hover. A thousand bolts and nuts moving in close formation. At first, it felt like trying to bounce, like you said, blindfolded on one foot on the tip of a football without spilling your beer. And I couldn't help but think that the time that the nine months I'd spent learning to fly airplanes amounted to absolutely nothing. Zip, zilch, nada. Oh, like, that's a humbling moment in yeah, time, though. Yeah. Oh. But back to your question on yes. the other side. Sure. Army trained pilots much more, got much more helicopter time, but they're not instrument rated. They got like a tactical instrument card in case you happen to fly into a cloud, you could get yourself out where we were fully instrument rated and, you know, flew instrument approaches and did all that. So probably... The naval aviator might be a better aviator, and the Army graduate is a better helicopter pilot. <laughs> so I, I give both sides a little uh, a little oh, kudos. Yeah. So <clears throat> you go through the training. Um, there's several different levels. You finally wind up. You get shipped to Vietnam, and you end up with Scarface, uh, HML <clears throat> heavy medium light or. Heavy, medium, light, helicopter, 367? Yeah, uh, HML, it's light. Because originally, when you were up at Fubai, they right. were flying Hueys. They were. Uh, HML is light, HMM is medium, the CH-46. HMH is heavy, the CH-53. Okay, very good. So they got Cobras, but it was still HML at the time. It eventually became HMA for attack, but HML. But... I was a, a MOS-designated Huey pilot because after flight school, went to New River, North Carolina to a Huey squadron. Right. My buddy, Joe Driscoll, also <laughs> went there. We ended up checking. Well, that's trouble. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> we were big in flight school. Uh, but uh, we end up checking in in Vietnam. We go to the MAG CO's office for the welcome aboard, and his colonel says, how you doing? And all that, and that. and then he says, uh, Driscoll, Driscoll, that name rings a bell. Well, Joe's father had flown Corsairs in the Pacific in World War II. Really? Yeah. And this guy says, I think I've heard of your father. Was he a Marine pilot? And he says, yeah, he flew Corsairs in the Pacific. And no. Colonel says, well, where do you guys want to go? And Joe says, the Cobra Squadron. He says, well, okay. <laughs> well, it wasn't as strange as it sounds because a, a, a Cobra is 80% Huey. They just right. took the fuselage and squished it in a vise and made tandem seating. Same engine, same rotors, same tail rotors, same skid system. Just a and the early models, <clears> the <throat> same underpowered yeah. engines. Underpowered dogs, yes. <laughs> but but they there's a lot of similarity. And this was the only Cobra squadron in the Marine Corps at the time. So really? there was no training group to go to. Right. So that's why I said in the squadron, most of them, uh, we had army trained guys, but uh, most of the pilots were on the job training. It was OJT. And they had just lost some pilots and they happened to need pilots. So when Joe says, We'd like to go to Cobra's 
colonel says, okay, sure, and we, we go to the Cobra Squadron. Well, I wish I had a better, better memory to give you a name, but when we were at CCN, when Scarface got their first Cobras, one of them, we had a couple land at CCN headquarters in Da Nang, mm-hmm. and we were socked in. So one of the Cobra pilot goes, hey, Tilt, you want to come out with me? We'll go out and see if we can find some uh, side pans to blow up. So I jumped in the front seat. Oh, I got really? my Cobra air time. All right, yay. Yeah, way to go. <laughs> so I, I can't remember the pilot's it, name. It wasn't, but just Scar- it wasn't Scotty or Romero, was it? They were kind I, of... You know what? Okay. The only names I remember was the OIC at that time, which was a Lieutenant Colonel Robinson, okay. who died in Thailand in a crash, yeah. tragically. And he was... And I knew him from 68 when they were flying the old Echo models of the yeah. UI. Um so I just forget because these guys could come and go, but they knew me and I recognized a couple of these guys. And yeah. hey, you know, I got you want to go out and get some yeah. side bands? I mean, that was like that was the cool, literally cool because yeah. you had the air conditioning on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody else was sweating their balls off. Yeah, and we're out there floating around. Air conditioned seat. It's a mesh seat, and the air would flow up. It was of course right then yeah. I realized I had the wrong MOS. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I yeah. just love flying helicopters, yeah. but the, this is it's a different world. <clears throat> But that was a cool. I'm sorry. I, I have well, a I'll, I'll tell you an aside. You can cut this if you want. But in flight school, there was a Navy pilot named Ben Franklin that Joe and I went through flight school with. Uh-huh. And Joe, uh, I mean Ben Franklin, got this pay raise because he was like an O one over three years or something. Turns out he went to LSU, signed up for Army ROTC. He went to see the movie The Blue Max. And he saw World War I biplanes, and he sees these guys up in the air, and he sees these grunts down in the mud in the trenches, and he said, I want to do that. <laughs> so he calls his senator's office and asks for an inter-service transfer. He, he graduates, gets commissioned in the Army, asks for an inter-service transfer. So for 18 months, he's sitting at the frat house at LSU no. and got transferred to the Navy, and, beca- and he ends up in our flight school class. But it's the same thing. He, said, he saw the movie The Blue Max and says, "I want to do. I want to do that." Yeah, I saw the movie Blue Max, but I wasn't smart enough to get an MOS swap. Yeah. He just went for. I want to transfer services. <laughs> oh my! So now you're assigned to Scarface, and um, so you became your call sign was Scarface Twenty, and Joe became Scarface uh, Forty Three. But if you could talk just for a moment about the Scarface history, I mean, it's it, you've got a rich history that yeah. we seldom hear about, and uh, that's why I'm glad you're on on for this <clears throat> interview because of, a you're in Scarface with this history and your time on that historic mission. Yeah, well, well, Scarface, and it went back to World War II before they got helicopters, but it was a gunship unit, and they were up in Fubai where where you were before yes, you came absolutely, to Da Nang. Sure. So it was Scarface guns flying the old Huey UH-1E gunships. Then they got relocated when they got the Cobras relocated down to uh, Marble Mountain. But uh, uh, once we got to Marble Mountain, we didn't do a lot of SOG stuff. We used to do some radio relay resupply across the border where you'd go s- sterile and stuff. But but by uh, you know by 1970 things were were starting to wind down. And most of our missions were uh, uh, covering the, the uh, Marine grunts, uh, close-in fire support, 
uh, escorting transport ships or or uh, medevac missions, uh, which which night medevacs could so get. So when a did you hairy. learn about Mission Seventy Two? <clears throat> well, Mission Seventy Two is when we were going across the fence. So right, uh, we did that a few <clears throat> times, but it, uh, it was. It was just just across the border a bit, and usually it was a, a resupply. There was a uh, radio relay site on a on a mountaintop out there, right? And we'd go fifty uh, forty sixes, escort them in, and they'd they'd uh, bring in some uh, supplies for them, and most of it. For for all with you, all those SOG teams, uh, that was mostly Huey gunships. That probably you were sixty nine, right? Right, yes, sir. Yeah, so they were mostly sixty eight, sixty nine. Yeah, they were they were Huey gunships then. Oh yeah, they yeah. could barely get yeah. off the ground. Yeah, yeah, they but were they always all, came. <clears throat> they were all always uh, Huey gunships. Absolutely. Yeah, and then um, your book goes into some of the history too about Sog. You learn about Mission seventy two, which you said, and then um, you you your book goes through, and people just have just got to get it because you do a good job of coming back through. The history of the war, getting the Scarface, and then um, uh, you talked a bit, a little bit about what's what Sog was. Officially, there were no Americans on the ground in Laos or Cambodia, Cambodia, just as they were officially no NVA. So certain procedures were deemed necessary by some geniuses at a puzzle palace high above my pay grade. First, we had to be sterile, meaning. We carried nothing that would identify us as Americans. No name tags, no dog tags, no wallets, no picture of wives or girlfriends, no letters from home. I suppose this was to provide plausible deniability for the crew if a bird was shot down. But then, again, you're writing stuff. (laughs) You come back and state the obvious. The whole idea of plausible deniability was kind of hard for me to wrap my brain around. So here I was, a six-foot, round-eye, White guy wearing a flight suit strapped in a green machine with Marines painted in English on the tail. Even if I could speak Leo or Vietnamese, what was I supposed to say if the bad guys got me? Hi there, I'm a Laosan woodcutter and I've lost my way. Could you please give me some food and water and point me to Vietnam? <laughs> <laughs> I like your assessment of the. Yeah. yeah, it didn't seem to make much sense to me. Well, and of course it did to anybody yeah. with common sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, as we, at some point, um, you all get out. So, talk about how you wrapped up your career, and then we'll get to the dark side of this story. Uh, well, I, I came back to the States, uh, and the Marine Corps was going from something like 320000 to 190000 a riff. So right, they were reduction in force. In force. Yeah. <clears throat> so I got out, went to uh, uh, graduate school at the University of Georgia. That's how I ended up in the South, and then uh, uh, was, was going to go work for the DEA. And at the last minute, I get a call from an old squadron mate that the the Shaw had just bought a bunch of J model Cobras and they were contacting every Marine pilot that had gotten out. I ended up going to Iran to be a flight instructor with the Iranian army. Uh, <clears throat> coming back from that, uh, I had various sundry jobs, got fixed wing ratings and ended up as a commercial airline pilot with a uh, kind of checkered past flying freight. And then I went to Eastern and 
took me four years to run them out of business. Then I went to Pan Am. It took me two years to run them out of business. No. Then I started over once again at United, and when they filed bankruptcy, everybody was blaming me, but it, it really wasn't my fault. <laughs> and, wow, you're the and, dark man on yeah, the horizon. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> but, but the thing is, uh, 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 you, the, you want me to get in the, the genesis of the book? Or, Absolutely. Have, okay, um, 1998... This was a top secret mission, not Tailwind was, but somehow CNN got a hold of it and made a documentary. And uh, in the documentary accused us of uh, uh, war crimes, specifically using nerve gas to kill women and children and American defectors. Of so, course, always we kill women and children. Oh, yeah. yeah. So so anyhow, the, the, the good that came out of that is that one, DOD investigated and declassified everything. So that's why I was able to get all these documents and other researchers were. And it highlighted what Mike Rose had done, and he ended up getting the Medal of Honor. So in, in 17... Well, and just for a quick sidebar <clears throat> here, when, he, when Mike uh, <clears throat> received the Medal of Honor from President Donald J. Trump, uh, October 23rd, 2017, all you, Joe, Subway Aviators, Captain yeah. McCarley... Bernie Bright, yeah, so many other heroes from that day were there. Got to go to the White House. Got to yeah. go to the White House. Um, were there for the medal, and then also spent some time alone with the president. Yeah, we spent about twenty minutes with them, and you know, the, all the battle buddies and uh, indeed, the president and vice president were there. Wow, is that yeah, right? Yeah. So that's when I uh, when I decided I say I'm going to write a book about this, and I. Thought I could do it, as I said, in two years, and it took me five. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I took you, I took you off the rail of your trail there. But I had to mention the fact that you all were there for that moment in time. Yeah. And uh, so the that show comes out with the Communist News Network and Time Warner, and then the shit hit the fan. DoD investigated it. There were uh, so many different responses to it back when there's still some critical media out there that honestly approach stories where today this right. would be ignored and they would be the communist news network would probably be applauded by everybody except for maybe a couple of small mm -hmm. media outlets. But that day there was still real journalism available and the courts were a true court that litigated. So take it from there a little bit further. Please. Well, it, it came out, uh, in, uh, uh, I think it was June 7th. It was the broadcast. Right. It was called Valley of Death. <clears throat> it was picked up by the wire service that night, and they they put a thing on the wire, AP did, that CNN has a broadcast accusing the Americans of using nerve gas in Laos, a weapon of mass destruction. It was picked up by the French wire service and the Chinese wire service, and by morning, the next morning, it had gone around the world. Of course, that's when we're accusing Saddam Hussein of using weapons of mass destruction. And he comes out and the Russians come out and say, look it, you did it. You did it in Laos in 1970. Sure. So it, it became a big brouhaha. CNN rebroadcast it the next Sunday with additional footage. They doubled down and said, yeah, here's our proof. Well, as you said, Mainstream media picked up on it, from TV Guide to Newsweek to the Wall Street uh, to New York Times. They said this doesn't pass the smell test. It just doesn't sound right, and raised the red flag. And within 
Within uh, four weeks or so, CNN hired an attorney named Floyd Abrams, a, a, a First Amendment attorney. To Who was a New York Times? <clears throat> New uh, York, New York attorney, yeah, litigator, yes. and hired him to do an investigation. And he did an investigation for CNN. DOD did an investigation. Other news sources investigated it and came out and said, uh, "You shouldn't have aired it. You made a mistake." You know, uh, CNN ended up retracting it. They apologized, kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. They said, we shouldn't have run the story. We didn't have the proof. They never said it didn't happen, but they kind of said, we shouldn't have run the story, which is, it's an, it's an apology of sorts. But, yeah. uh, you know, they, they, they got a black eye of it, and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's the way the thing was structured. Uh, <clears throat> CNN was the go-to network for emergencies for natural disasters wars whatever when something catastrophic happened everybody yeah, they tuned were respected news network <clears throat> they were ted turner was a visionary and that was hardcore news but for weekday entertaining when cbs nbc and abc are running sitcoms nobody tuned in cnn unless there's a hurricane or a right. war or something so they hired a guy named Rick Kaplan from ABC to be president of CNN USA to bring some pizzazz to the network. And they wanted to build upon this news show they had called uh, 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 well, was news, new, well, they they came up with uh, uh, CNN and Time. They wanted to compete with 60 yeah, Minutes. They wanted to compete with 60 Minutes uh abc all, all of their new shows so they brought kaplan in and he started this special investigative unit and a lady named pam hill was put in charge of it <clears throat> well the year before another one of their documentaries done uh shows had had done something based on john plaster's book about sog uh, warriors and it didn't get any traction didn't make it anywhere but in john plaster's book he has a few pages about tailwind right so they assigned this to which actually reported that yeah. they use cs yeah, yeah did but april oliver who worked on that became the producer for this this uh newsstand show it was cnn and time newsstand cnn and time they called it so she latched on the tailwind said well we'll do our inaugural show on tailwind and she started calling her sources here and sources there and she she went down some rabbit holes and and latched on the things and and uh you know it's kind of confirmation bias you have this opinion and you just want to listen to people that are going to verify what you believe pam hill who runs the investigative unit says keep everything close to the vest in house so she couldn't reach out to Jamie McIntyre, there's Pentagon reporter, or Perry Smith, the retired Air Force general, who was their, their military well, at advisor. At that point, he had done, he <clears throat> was yeah. responsible for making CNN so responsive and yeah. respected. Yeah, because respected. he had the connections that he could go uh, to any kind of an action, military-wise. Right. Say, I'm with CNN, we're going to do this, and they were, at that point, They respected. were well-respected. Sure. And then the whole thing's headed by Kaplan, who's bringing pizzazz to the network and kind of plays loose and fast with the rules. So April Oliver, uh, the, the two tenants of her show were 
nerve gas and defectors. So for nerve gas, she's having dinner with her cameraman, a guy named Mike Marriott, who had spent eight years working for CBS in Vietnam, was an experienced Vietnam guy, left on the last bird out on the, on, in April of 75 on the EVAC. Marriott tells her this story that he went for a ride in the back of a Navy F-4 in 1971 over North Vietnam, and that the CIA briefed him about this special gas that they had called Glink. And if you get shot down, we're going to come in and gas the whole area. You'll be unconscious, but the paramedics will come in. They'll inject you with the antidote, extract you, and everybody else will die. Glink. Well, she buys into that. That plants the bug in her head. Regardless of the fact there was no bombing of North Vietnam, from 1968 to 1972, right? <clears throat> he said he went on this. He was from Australia, so what's the odds of a CIA briefing a foreign national on a top secret program that didn't exist? <laughs> and then when it came to court, they got access to his computer and saw that he had researched nerve gas and CBUs and other things like the week before he had dinner with April Oliver. No. So that plants the nerve gas in her hair. And then Van Buskirk, who was Lieutenant Van Buskirk, uh, led the first platoon, and uh, a heroic guy, did, did uh, great things on Tailwind, but uh, he kind of sometimes had problems telling the he, truth. He had some memory issues <laughs> 28 years later. Uh, well, yeah, after, after uh, he left SOG, he got wounded and got medevaced to the States and then got orders to Germany. He gets to Germany and he starts, uh, uh, <clears throat> comes up, not sure if he wants to stay in the army, he comes up with this, uh, he gets into fast cars, goes to driving school and he has this racing habit. So he's selling antique clocks and other stuff on the side. He said he was making 4000 to 5000 a month above his army salary sell, selling stuff yeah. on the side to support his racing habit. <laughs> Ends up... He gets arrested and thrown in a German prison. He's 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 in prison, and uh, for first they accuse him of selling guns. He's in prison, and uh, he has a come to Jesus moment, and he's saved. And he ends up they don't they don't charge him. He is born again. He comes back to the U.S. and goes to divinity school at Duke. And he makes his, his shtick is prison ministries because he can relate to prisoners. But he always had this penchant for fast cars and women and money. And uh, preachers don't make a lot of money, but he right. ends up, he married a girl so from he's Georgia. So I don't want to go too far down <clears throat> yeah, that road. Yeah, okay. That, yeah. But he said things that he she He said used things. He, and and he was active. interviewed and he said... Uh, uh, First, he, he wrote a book called Tailwind, and he said he had killed an NVA regimental commander. Then on his first interviews with April Oliver, he said, I killed a Russian advisor. And then after several interviews, he says, no, it was Americans. He said there were two Americans, blonde hair, right off the beach in California. They ran down a, and went into a spider hole, and I yelled in the spider hole, I'm Lieutenant Van Buskirk, Come, I'm here to take you home. And they said, F you, and he said, F you, and threw a Willie Pete in there. That was his story. So there was the reason to use nerve gas in April Oliver's head. That gave her, why use nerve gas? Well, it's to kill these American defectors. And the story went on from there, and she got people 
on the show who were not even in SOG, who were never set foot in Laos testifying. Uh, and, and it was, it fell apart. It fell apart under scrutiny. It was a oh, yeah. Yeah, sad day for journalism. Absolutely. So through all this, um, you were supportive of it, working with, uh, with people. <clears throat> we had Jim Moriarty at that time, uh, worked with several of the men from, from um, Operation Tailwind and did over a million dollars worth of uh, billable time that he could have billed people for that he donated to help yeah. help those SF Yeah, men. he did. And he was making this documentary, which he wanted to go to trial with CNN. Yeah. And instead of money, he wanted them to show this documentary. But uh, everything was settled out of court. Yeah, many many settlements out of court, all <clears> of which <throat> were sealed. Yeah. And uh, no further details provided, none were asked for, and that's where we ended yeah. up. Um, the And, of course... Gene McCarley had said, too, that he had a conversation with Ted Turner. He did. And Ted Turner finally wrote a letter of apology to Gene. He said that he would write him to the other members of Tailwind. Never did. Never did. And uh, that's just part of that whole disgraceful legacy. And, of course, today, the curse of, uh, the, curse of the Internet, you oh. can still find that story that was aired by the yeah. Communist News Network. Yeah, that talks about the Valley of Death. Yeah, and there are another. There's a couple of podcasters now that pick this up, and they run with the stories. And some, one in particular, does a positive light, and he uses that to talk about the valor. But he's taking footage from the Valley of Death. Oh, and uses it. It's just I didn't like, know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's part of today's uh, society here with with all that. Le- um, the different things we have to live with are complicated, media-infested. Yeah. And now with the media changing to what it well, was today compared to 20 years ago. You know, they, they say for centuries, news generally flowed from uh, somewhat verifiable sources at the top down to the people. And now with the Internet and cell phones, news comes from a billion people typing with their thumbs from the bottom, unverifiable, and uh, you can say anything. You can just say anything. And someone's going to believe it. You can say the moon's made of green cheese and somebody's going to believe it. Yeah, and there were many uh, descriptions that came out with that. And the American Journalism Review, which was a magazine <clears throat> that focused on journalism, newspapers, and they wrote that Valley of Death could appear on CNN and in time, despite its flaws, Shouldn't be, should not be dismissed as an aberration, but seen as a biopsy from a system that suffers from a serious pathology, says Ted Gupp, G-U-P, a former investigative reporter for Time, who is now writing books and teaching journalism at Georgetown University. The controversy, he says, <clears throat> represents most immensely of all, with the media at large, a very disturbing trend of senior editors becoming increasingly more gullible and a tendency for more and more journalists to work in the realm of possibility rather than truth. You don't print possibilities when they can destroy individual and national reputations, he says. The stakes are too high. And that is a perfect indictment yeah. of the Communist News Network and Time Warner. 
But, you know, in the media today, if it bleeds, it leads, is the buzzword. People <clears throat> people tune in to see something exciting, you know, the car chase, the fire, whatever. And they have the clicker in their hand. And if you don't get their attention and keep their attention, they'll change channels. And that's advertising dollars. So it's all about money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Um, the There was... Um Another aspect, uh, just one, just a, a quick uh, sidebar here as I try to get my act together. Um, we had, um, you listed some of the awards and decorations that were presented, but you also had um, information about um, the helicopters to talk about the support. You said that there were about 12,000 helicopters used and the second Indochina <clears throat> War, which is our Vietnam War, of which more than 5,600 were destroyed. During that time, 4,877 American pilots and crew members lost their lives. Included in these totals were approximately 200 helicopters plus 177 pilots and crew members killed in the secret war in Laos and that information you posted was from the Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association and he said it reflects only on classified losses then early losses across the fence were classified and not all records were updated so the numbers are probably understated and the one other number that we have to add to that that today we still have 1,581 Americans from the Vietnam War in Southeast Asia that are still listed as MIA. Out of that, we have 50 Green Berets alone that were lost in the secret war that are still missing in action. Yeah. And we're going to have, a, in a future sawcast, we'll be interviewing one of the brothers of one of our oh. SF uh, MIAs for, yeah. to talk about that side of that coin. Um so um, we're at that point in time here. Any other little thoughts or um, things you would like to point out for the sawcast, uh, one way or the other? Uh, well, when when you just uh, said that, it brought something to mind. Talking to uh, a fella that works at the uh, agency in Hawaii, where they go out to relocate bodies. DPA. You know, yeah, DP, DPAA. Yes, the, yeah. the Department of Defense, the Department of POW, MIA, yeah. Accounting Ability Agency. Talking, Agency. talking to someone there in my research, uh, as I said, all the records for the 559th were destroyed. But, and this is kind of interesting, there was someone who kept a record of all the American aircraft shot, shot down on a piece of paper. Really? And they have it somewhere. DPA. Yeah, but uh, 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 this uh, this fellow, uh, uh, not Doug Matt, I can't think of his name. But anyhow, he was looking for it. He said, I've seen it. It's written somewhere because I was trying to find out who shot down each of the helicopters lost on, on Tailwind. That sure. would have been a nice tidbit. He lists down who shot it down, who got credit for it. You know. Really? But, yeah. But but anyhow, this piece of paper, this guy I that I talked that. to, yeah. has uh, ha had seen it, and then COVID hit, so they worked worked from home for two years, and then they were back to the office, and uh, 
they're renovating. So they took out all the file cabinets and they're redoing this office or something. So it's been like a three-year search. I've been been communicating with this guy. Maybe someday I'll find that. I think, it, I mean, it'll be a, a footnote in history, but I think it'll be uh, uh, a nice, neat piece of uh, trivia. Well, yeah, because the Russians and, <clears throat> and, and the Russians, as you point out in your book, more than 3,000 Russians served in yeah. their secret war in Vietnam. A lot were cannon cockers and radar people training up as well as the anti-aircraft, yeah. which is a cannon cockers, anti-aircraft. Yeah, yeah, same. And uh, so any other last thoughts there uh, as we close up here? No, nothing. I, I, uh, I appreciate your time. Well, likewise. And, and, and then um, we just uh, as a footnote to all this, um, you know, the Special Operations Association was formed in 1976 by Green Berets that fought in the secret war. And we have some SEALs, force, uh, a couple of key Marine Corps folks that came in. They expanded the membership to include aviators that supported SOG, of which Scarface is, is a member. And one of the unique aspects of the war was that a team would be on the ground. We're in, in trouble. Aviators come, save our bacon, pull us out under enemy fire. We've lost men, great valor during that eight-year secret war. Aviators would go home, we go home, lick our wounds, gear up for the next mission, it happens again. But there's never inter- any opportunity to have interaction yeah. between. Yeah. So um, we've had different helicopter units in there. That was cool. But we never met the SPAD pilots. So there was a reunion in Sevierville at the oh, uh, yeah. Tennessee yeah, Museum yeah. of Aviation, which now would be, what, eight or nine years ago. Yeah. And that was the first reunion. There was a second reunion. And at that reunion, several people spoke, including you, sir. And I'm going to close on that note because <laughs> you had the perfect. I'm quoting from a book, Saw Chronicles, Volume 1, written by yours truly. But it was a perfect assessment. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and so <laughs> so you close it, and I'm reading from the book. Said, and then on an impromptu closing note, that seemed to be apropos editorial comment on Operation Tailwind in general. Laced in the vernacular of 1970, Pensick turned to the audience and apologized to ladies in advance for, quote, contaminating <laughs> the spoken word with profanities to summarize the time he spent during that operation. I can't think of another way to say this, he said apologetically. For example, if somebody's really good He's hot shit. If something was good, it was shit hot. If you got into a bad situation, it was a shit sandwich. Don Persky mentioned the sandwich we got into earlier. If you had your act together, you had your shit together. And I would like to say that I was honored to have a week or so to spend with all these people here and a bunch of others. And they were a bunch of hot shit guys on a shit hot mission and we got into a shit sandwich but we got our shit together in the end no shit <laughs> indeed that's a classic albeit somewhat shitty postscript to operation tailwind courtesy of barry pensick <laughs> you're welcome oh yes well thank you we have to so we'll close on that note and uh, <clears throat> as always um we want to thank uh, uh, Jocko Productions in collaboration with Saw Chronicles for this production, for making these possible. And uh, we always uh, 
thank all the men and women in our armed services who have fought and bled for this country. We also thank Border Patrol, law enforcement, first responders, EMTs, corrections officers, people putting their lines online during these two years with COVID, the hospital personnel, and what they were up against. And um, we just thank them all for what they've done over the years and continue to do to serve our country. And we thank the men and women who served the years past, heroes like you, sir, Barry Pensick. We thank you for that service, your time in the Marine Corps with aviation, that uh, we can never lose the sight of how great that history is and you're a part of that lineage. We also remember and salute the men and women from the Vietnam War who did not return. Today there are 1,581 missing in action, including our 50 Green Berets, and as Joe said, I mean, Barry said over 100 plus aviators, depending on who you talk to. We've documented 83, but we thank those men and women. We salute that memory. God bless America. Until next time.